Turning today, not back to where we have already been reading from, that was Ephesians chapter 4, but rather 1 Corinthians and the chapter 13. 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, and you will know that we're looking at the features of real love as defined here by God the Holy Spirit. And we see those listed in verse 4 through to the verse 7, and we'll read those again today. Verse 4, charity suffereth long and is kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. With God's Word open before us, we'll bow again today in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we call upon Thy name this morning. We need Thy help. We need Thee standing by our right hand to assist. We know that all times, and we were thinking recently about Joshua the high priest and how he came before the Lord and how in the presentation there were filthy garments that the Lord in grace commanded that they should be removed and that new garments should be brought to him and a fair mitre should be set upon his head. And with that change of raiment, he was able to approach and defy the devil and all of his machinations against him. And so we pray that living in a world in which we do, uh, wanting to live for Christ, wanting to bear a good testimony to his name, wanting to see others convinced and converted, we pray that that will help us to manifest and to model the kind of features that we have here delineated in this chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Lord, we recognize when the measurement goes up how far short we fall. But it is what we have to be aspiring to and laboring and working towards and sparing no energy but to arrive in these areas in the way that the Master would determine. So we pray for help today. We pray for grace. We ask that about help as we listen to the Word. And may it not just be a case of, well, that's a good reminder for that fellow, that girl over there but may it be applied unto our own hearts by the power of thy Holy Spirit. So touch our lips, we pray, uh, invigorate our minds, uh, help us to give attention to thy truth and to allow it to be worked out as we assimilate it into life. In Jesus' name and to thine eternal glory, we ask these things. Amen. We have today got as far as 1 Corinthians 13 and 5, and we're looking at the final couple of clauses uh, where it is said there that love, charity, is not easily provoked. And then the second one, thinketh no evil. 
Claims made that in a churchyard near Leamington, an old village in England, a tombstone is standing there and it has a, an inscription like this. Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. By way of contrast, consider a true and what is an up-to-date story. Though I'm mentioning a reference back in 2009, the story is ongoing as we are meeting here today. Under the title back then in 2009, the BBC News reported Thursday 14th of May on how a millionaire was giving away his estate. A man in Northumberland was selling a 16 million country estate and giving every single penny that was raised by the seal to charity. The man's name was Brian Burney. The property was the Duxford Hall Hotel and the 10 acres around it near Alnick in north of England. Now, what he wanted to do was to take the profits and establish and pay for Macmillan cancer nurses for that region, North Northumberland. And he also wanted to pay for a set of custom-made vehicles that would take cancer patients to and from hospital appointments and surgeries. Mr. Burney said, we live in a me, me, me society. And it has always been important to me to think of others. We can all do something by leaving money to charity when we die, but why don't we do something while we are still living? He said that he and the family they would live on in their private pension when this estate was sold. He said we won't exactly be selling the big issue, but we will be downsizing. I've done the stately home bit, the bricks and the mortar, but I've always been a people person. To be able to do something to to help people has a much bigger return than any financial gain. He was a man who, way back when he was 15 years of age, he had begun as a grocery delivery boy. Then he began a student apprenticeship for the builders, John Lang. He went on from that to become a trained engineer. Then he moved into management, firstly in the building industry, then over into petrochemicals. In the year 1979, Mr. Burney and a partner started an investment company, Kelburn Holdings, in Newcastle. And then they later moved into recruitment. And it all led to Mr. Burney and his wife buying Doxford Hall from Northumberland County Council in 1993. They turned it into a 25-bedroom hotel and spa complex, and they were inviting, of course, conferences, and weddings were taking place there too. Now, they had been contributing to charity over the last 40 years, supporting various cancer charities, inviting war veterans to their home for meals, and also opening their door to the less fortunate on Christmas Day. Newcastle-born, he joked, I went to school in Heaton and not Eton. And he also said, you are what your parents are, and you should never forget your roots. We were millionaires in kindness, not money. Writing out checks, that's the easy bit. 
It's actually getting off your jacket and helping the cause you want to support. That is the hard part. He called the transport service that he set up daft as a brush, and they used brightly colored vehicles. Now, if you were to talk to Macmillan Cancer Trust, they don't view Mr. Burning as daft as a brush at all. Though some today, I'm sure, caught up in our material-saturated society might look at that and think, why would you do that? All of that money and you're throwing it into charity, surely it's time to eat, drink, and be merry yourself and keep lining your own nest. Because this story cuts across, and it is a refreshing change to the me syndrome that is such a prominent feature of this generation. Now, there have been bumps on the way and difficulties, and if you bring yourself up to date with the story, you'll find some of the setbacks that he's had to work through, but he's still giving to charity even to this day. Now, we turned to look at this syndrome last week when we wed the words that we have in 1 Corinthians 13, the verse 4 and 5, charity suffereth long and is kind, charity envieth not, charity Vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. And we told the story then of Narcissus and that whole movement whereby we see people looking at their reflection in the pool or in the mirror and thinking life just revolves around me and no one else. This love of sense. We push back in our preaching at that very concept, the love of self. The charity that Paul describes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it runs contrary to selfishness. And we have 15 short phrases sketching in the features, layer by layer, building up a profile of what we have called the true agape love, the highest form of love. And some people have come to the chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and they've said it's the most beautiful, complete statement on love that has ever been written. A preacher, G. Campbell Morgan, said that examining this chapter is like dissecting a flower to understand it, but if you turn it apart too much, then you will lose the beauty. Alan Redpath Bible teacher as well said you could get a spiritual suntan from the warmth of this particular chapter. And there's no doubt that if we take these verses seriously, we are going to be challenged. I mean, isn't that why we come to the house of God? Not just to seal through a service, but to be challenged, to be convicted, even cajoled into a new way of living, a new way of loving. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 undoubtedly will do if we take it in the proper spirit. To date, we have looked as to how love is patient, charity suffereth long, is kind, is not jealous, for it envieth not, is not proud, doesn't vaunt itself, is not conceited, is not puffed up, is not graceless or rude, for it does not behave itself unseemly, is not selfish, for it seeketh not her own. Seven features so far out of the 15 that are in verse 4 through to verse 7, the eighth feature of love is that it's not easily angered. Love is not angry, in other words. 
First Corinthians 13 and 5, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. The Greek word that's translated in our English here is provoked. It's parox uno. And so for those that like the game that um, uno, the final part of the word, comes from, you might well be able to keep this in mind. It means to sharpen. It actually talks about being roused to rage. Parox uno. And we get our English word from that. Paroxysm means a sudden outburst, means a violent expression of emotion. What is Paul teaching us here? He's teaching us this. Love never becomes irritated, upset, angry, not ready to fight. The mention of this quality, surely it prompts us to put the brakes on, come screeching to a halt here as we try to consider, digest what has just been said. Because is this not a quality that's coming too close for comfort to many? Love is not easily provoked, isn't quick-tempered, doesn't blow its top, isn't easily angered, is not irritable. By contrast, love is good-natured, easygoing, and quick to forgive. I was reading a quotation by Philip Ryken this week. And he puts it like this, love is not grumpy or grouchy. Love does not get ticked off. Love does not go on a rampage or a tirade. Love does not launch into verbal abuse or give people the silent treatment or get into a bad temper or do whatever else it is tempted to do when people are angry or irritated. There's an old Peanuts cartoon that you may or may not be aware of, and it shows Lucy standing with her arms folded and a stern expression on her face, and Charlie Brown is pleading, Lucy, you must be more loving. This world really needs love. You have to let yourself love to make this world a better place. And Lucy angrily whirls around and knocks Charlie Brown to the ground and screams at him, Look, blockhead, the world I love. It's people I can't stand. I'm quite certain we all can feel that way from time to time. But maybe some people feel that way most of the time. And somebody might even be thinking right now, yes, that's a bit of a measure of me in regard to some people at this moment in time. Loving the world in general, in the abstract, is not that difficult, because you're not focusing on faces particularly. Loving the people around us can be a major challenge. That is why we need to study the words, the inspired words of 1 Corinthians 13. We need to know what love is and what it looks like in the nitty-gritty of life. Do we find it easy to be provoked? Do we find it easy to become irritated with those who, in our opinion, are just plain annoying? You know what? Most of us tend to look at this whole thing as a minor problem. 
as if being ill-tempered was, oh, well, just a matter of temperament or personality or its family background, and we can excuse it by saying, that's just the way I am. Well, that can be true. It could well be the way you are, but it is not the way you're supposed to be. Over 100 years ago, Henry Drummond wrote a wonderful short treatment of 1 Corinthians. He called the book the greatest thing in the world. And when he came down as far as 1 Corinthians 13 and 5 to this phrase that we're looking at right now, is not easily provoked, he noted the peculiarity of ill temper is that it is the vice of the virtuous. It is often the one blot on an otherwise noble character. You know men who were all but perfect and women who could be entirely perfect but for an easily ruffled, quick-tempered, or touchy disposition. I know some people, and you do as well, who excuse their bad temper by saying, sure, I lose my temper a lot. But it's over in a short time. So is a nuclear bomb. A great deal of damage can be done in a very short time. And even those small temper bombs that we drop behind us can leave a lot of hurt. Especially when they're exploding on a regular basis. Your temper is a sign of what is in your heart. A bad temper, a symptom of a terrible disease within the soul. It's an escaping bubble that's revealing a fetid pit within. And the fact of the matter is, it is a sin to be provoked. To allow yourself to boil, to burst doubt. And it is not loving. And if you're thinking, well, there's not a lot of consequence to that... Think again, what about Moses excluded from the promised land because he became provoked at the people of Israel? Numbers 20, verse 2 to 11, Adam Clark, Bible commentator, said, When the man who possesses this love gives way to provocation, he loses the balance of his soul and grieves the Spirit of God. Surely if he get embittered against his neighbor, he does not love him as himself. What are the two major commandments according to Jesus Christ? Love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. And secondly, and our neighbor as ourselves. And if we are exploding on him or her, then we're not loving him. In the way that Jesus Christ demands. But somebody might interject with the thought, wait a minute. If love doesn't get provoked, and that's what I'm being told here, that's what I'm reading, it doesn't get provoked, how do you explain the whole concept of righteous anger? A lot of people hide behind, I've heard from my earliest days, whenever I was growing up in a sinless perfection environment, whenever someone flipped, did what Paul is saying here, you should not be doing. It was all covered over with, oh, it's righteous indignation. And most of the time it was anything but righteous. But what about this 
whole concept of righteous indignation. Well, our Lord Jesus displayed it when he purged the temple in Mark eleven fifteen to 17 and John 2 and 15. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he taught them, saying, It is written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. So if you were in the business of cleansing the temple, march on ahead. I'm quite sure that after Tetzel had come with his ungodly lines and money-making cries to Wittenberg or neighboring areas to Wittenberg, and Martin Luther heard about Tetzel's indulgence selling appearance and how he was taking the money out of the hands of the people and telling them, buy your own pardons for whatever sins you want to commit. I'm sure he was more than a little angry. In fact, I know he was. Records underline the fact that he was. And he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, trying to provoke some debate back then. We have Paul, the apostle. He goes up to Mars Hill at Athens, and we're finding the word used of him in Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him, when he saw the whole city given to idolatry, and that word stirred is the word we mentioned earlier. Paroxunu. He is upset. He is irritated. He is angry. The same word as we have in 1 Corinthians 13 and 5. He was angry about idolatry. Now that was righteous indignation. He was angry because of something that was an affront to God. And truth is, you can't live the Christian life without showing a little bit of anger. You've got to be mad against the devil. You've got to be mad against your own flesh. You've got to be mad against what defiles God's word and defies his truth. That is righteous indignation, which I believe every man and woman of God should have. But what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 and 5 is that love does not get mad, angry, upset at other people. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Jonathan Edwards, third president of Princeton University in America, one of the greatest preachers in history, had a daughter who had an uncontrollable temper. A young man fell in love with Edward's daughter, but because their courtship was all hearts and flowers, he had no idea about the temper she had. She had never revealed it. The day finally arrived when the young man would round to Jonathan Edwards, the girl's father, to ask for her hand in marriage. Dr. Edwards, he said, I want to marry your daughter. You can't have her was the abrupt answer of Jonathan Edwards. But I love her, replied the young man. But you still can't have her, Edwards repeated. But she loves me, the young man argued. You still can't have her, Edwards again repeated. But why not? And the young man's exasperated here and pleading. Because, Edwards answers, she's not worthy of you. Astonished, the young man asked. But Dr. Edwards, she's a Christian, isn't she? Yes, said Edwards, but the grace of God 
can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. When we get angry, when the rage rises, what we say often wounds the other person. And let's make no bones about it. It's because that's what we want to happen. That's what we are expecting will be the result. And we put barbs in our words to wound and to hurt. And when you're angry, you're deciding, I want my way and I want it the way I want it. And if you don't do it the way I want it, I'm going to hurt you. Anger causes us to say things that never will be forgotten. Things that leave deep scars. We do things that hurt and that injure, but love bears all injuries. Love suffers all things without irritation, exasperation, unless it's defending God. But when it comes to defending yourself, love is not easily provoked. When a husband lashes out, slaps his wife, does he love her? Absolutely not. He does not. He's more concerned about himself and his own battered reputation than anything else. What do you do if your child does something that you don't like? Does that frail little baby or child become a battered child? Does your child get knocked across the room into the wall because he or she has stepped on something that you wanted for yourself? That's, again, what Paul is addressing here. Anger is the opposite of love because anger says, I matter so much that if you do something that I don't like, I'm going to let you have it. Anger is not an easy thing to handle. And unless you learn to handle it, you'll never really appreciate love. You can tell your husband constantly you love him. But if all you ever do is get angry at him, it's going to be very hard to convince him that you love him. You can tell your children that you love them, but if all you ever do is flare up into a rage, stand and yell at them, become irritated by everything they do, get upset at them, they're going to wonder, what can I do that will make my mom or my dad happy? And it's going to be hard to convince them of your love. Love is the only cure for irritability. Because irritability, when you analyze it, is simply self-centeredness. And we could talk much about temper and how it can destroy a person. But the point Paul is making here is simply this. Being provoked, getting angry, flying into a rage is not loving. Granville Walker said... Love is the only cure for irritability, for irritability is only another manifestation of self-centeredness, and love that takes a man outside himself and centers the focus of his attention on the well-being of others is its only cure. How do I deal with this in my life? The love of God needs to be shed abroad in our heart. Christ Jesus personified that love. Paul modeled that love. Let me, before we move on, speak of the example of Christ. What about the way in which he engaged? 
with all of these unlovely and irritable people around him. People placed pressing triggers that could have stirred others to anger and fueled rage. He preached in Nazareth, the place where he'd been brought up, and they ran him out of town. He healed countless numbers of people. Sometimes on the Sabbath day, the religious leaders, they are constantly criticizing and carping at him day after day from sunrise through to sunset. He ministered to multitudes. Do you read of him growing grouchy? No, you don't. Some were accusing him of doing his miracles by the power of the devil himself. Still, he's not roused to anger. Those religious leaders, they're plotting against him, and he knows all that's going on here. Judas betrays him. He's arrested. His disciples abandon him. Still, you don't read of him becoming irritated or launching into a verbal tirade. He's falsely accused in an unjust rigged trial, scourged, stripped, and adorned with a crown of thorns and mocked. Still he is not provoked. He has kneeled to a cross. They gamble at the base of the cross for his garments. He's mocked by everybody, by the soldiers, by the thieves crucified on either side, by the religious leaders, by all of those passing by. And though they reviled, we read what? He reviled not again. Though they threatened, he uttered no threats the one who put the stars in place, who created that very hill called Calvary, endured it all without responding in kind to the abuse that he suffered. Why? Because he never lost sight of the fact, I am here to do my Father's will. I am here to glorify my Father. I am here as God's expression of love in love. God sent a son to die in love. His son willingly subjected himself to all of that with all that that involved, and he endured it all for us. And if I am therefore going to see an illustration of love that is not easily provoked, I see it in him. And so if I challenge my heart, I'm going to be asking myself, how much am I really trying to model my life on my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Another feature we're looking at today is the ninth feature in the list here, and love thinketh no evil. Doth not, 1 Corinthians 13 and 5, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Going Greek again, but just briefly. In the Greek, the word thinketh, thinketh no evil. Check it in the margin of your Bible there. Logizomai is the Greek for what it's worth, but it's an accountant's word, an accountant's word that literally means to keep a mathematical calculation or table. It's a word that's used to describe an entry in a bookkeeper's ledger. And the reason a bookkeeper writes things in a ledger is so that he or she will not forget them. So what Paul is saying simply here is this. Love never keeps books on the evil done to it. Love never keeps a running record of everybody's offense. Love never holds others accountable for some wrong, evil, or injury that they have done. Love 
forgives and forgets. Now, that's a challenge. John Chrysostom, leader in the early church, early New Testament church, had a tremendous thought on the subject. And what he said was something like this. As a spark is quenched, when it drops into the ocean, so an injury that falls upon a loving Christian is just as surely drowned and quenched. And that's the way it should be. Can we operate in such a way that offenses are drowned in a sea of love? Warren Wearsby said that he once knew a man who kept a list, a written list, of those rotten things that people had done to him. Mrs. X did this, and he writes it all down. Mr. Y did that, and he writes it all down. He just fills a book with things that people had done to him. He had obviously very little to do with his time, but this is what he did with his time. And weirs be noted, he was also, this man, one of the most miserable people I have ever known. Many people don't write it, but they keep mental lists of slights or perceived slights that they have suffered. And they never get over what has happened in the past. And they're pooling the past along with them every single hour of every single day. They dwell on it. They live in it. They ferment in it. And as a result, they allow the past to misshape the present and also the future. But true love has a bad memory when it comes to remembering wrong. Love is very quick, thinking of a computer analogy to hit the delete key. To get rid of it, love will say, I'm putting that in the past and I'm not going to bring it up again. So love is not, Paul is saying here, taking into account a wrong suffer, doesn't impute evil, doesn't brood over iniquities or injuries that are done against it. It's not suspicious of others, not cynical about the good deeds done by others, isn't quick to remember, oh, he or she, yeah, that's the person who did that to me, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. They did this. And all of a sudden it becomes like an instant recall in all of its gory detail. That's not behaving as a Christian. To illustrate what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 13 and 5, we are digging a little deeper into the Greek word that he uses, logizomai. It's the same verb that is used in the New Testament to speak of the pardoning act of God. In fact, it's often translated, when you come across it in the New Testament, it's often translated by the word imputed. And you'll know where we're going with that. What is not imputed in Romans 4 and 8? Blessed is a man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And so in the language of 1 Corinthians 13 and 5, that would read, Blessed is the man of whom the Lord keeps no record of evil. Now, if we are saved, is not what we want the Lord to do. Or better, not to do. Not to keep a record of our evil. Well, why are we keeping it on others? 
Why do we want something from the Lord that we are not prepared to give to somebody else? And to those who fear, someday when we get to heaven, we're going to face the record of our sin, and then we're really sunken. God's Word assures us, for the child of God in Christ, there is no record of our evil. The only thing written against us in the books is the fact that we are declared righteous. Then it's closed, and that's what stays on the file. Righteous. Why? Because the Lord does not mathematically add up our sin. He does not keep accounting of sin. 2 Corinthians 5 and 19 to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He's not keeping a record of evil on all of those who come to Christ. He doesn't keep on accounting. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. You ask then, well, what's on the ledger? What's in the book? I told you what's not imputed. I will tell you what is imputed. Romans 4 and 6. David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Romans 4 and 22. Therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. James 2, 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. God keeps account of righteousness, never sin. I feel, I fall, I offend him. But even though I do, he does not say, I'm getting sick and tired of that brown. I'm going to start writing down his sins in all of their gory detail. If he doesn't get his act together, he doesn't say that because he doesn't keep an account. He gives us absolute forgiveness because he has died for us. Died for those sins because he loves us. Loves us to such an extent that he forgives and keeps on forgiving and keeps on forgiving. And listen, keeps on forgiving. So much so that today and in eternity I will declare Jesus thy blood and righteousness. My beauty are, my glorious dress midst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. But resentment Resentment keeps the books on other people's offenses. We brood over the record, we read it, we reread it, we read it again, we make sure that the molehill reaches the scale of a mountain of hostility. Do you know what they do in some of the Polynesian islands? Spend a lot of their time warring and fighting. But it is a custom for every person to keep visible reminders of their hatred. And they do this by suspending little articles from the roof of their huts. With each article representing something about somebody that they hate. 
our houses will probably be decorated for Christmas soon, if not already. Can you imagine your house decorated like a Polynesian hut? This they did, that they did, the other thing they did. Is it a fair comment to say that most of our minds have some of these articles of hate hanging in them? It's not something we like to admit, but is it not true? Love never makes memories out of evils. That's what Paul is saying here. It does not make memories out of evils. It fast forgets, and it sees past as person sins to their potential in grace. The fact that God loves them. Love always forgives. Love never keeps an account of wrong. Love does not get irritated, does not explode in rage. Do we love like that? It's the way the Lord Jesus loved. It's the way that we are meant to love too. In 1 Peter 2 and 23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And here's the other text that comes to mind for these two features of love today. Luke 23, 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 